Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online serving series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, with Pastor John King. Well, good morning again, folks. How are we today? Is this a beautiful day or what? I love this time of year. Well, let's look again at Daniel chapter 2. We'll look at uh, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As you're turning there, i just reminder, last week we, we witnessed how Daniel and uh, his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, reacted to their new surroundings and circumstances. Despite having been separated from their families and given Babylonian names and being placed in the very court of the king of Babylon, Despite their surroundings and circumstances, they chose to be set aside for God and obedient to his word so that God could guide them through the temptations presented to them by their Babylonian captors. This week, the the scene will shift back to the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar. We read last week that Daniel had a long and uh, fruitful life in service to the king for over 60 years. But this week, the the scene will now shift back in chapter 2 to the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, around 603 to 602 B.C., and it takes a look at how he reacts to a remarkably detailed and frightening dream that he has experienced. We will see that God is using this dream to communicate to the king and those who read this text his sovereign plan for the future both for the people of old and the people of today. As we make our way through chapter 2, we will begin to see through the eyes of God and man a revelation of how the nations of this world will rise and fall right up to the final or the end of human history. And by the time we reach chapter 7, we will see the future final kingdom that will come to govern the earth under the lordship of the true king, Jesus Christ. You don't see that on CNN, do you? <laughs> That's news, folks. That should be news. That this is, you know, the Lord is in control of all these things. All nations will rise and fall. Let's look at our story as we read verses 1 through 13. We read, Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and of course we'll give you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, well, then you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Oh, boy. Got him in a bad mood. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Then they answered and said again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. 
The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the dream, or excuse me, till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason the king was angry and very furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, you've You've brought us to a place of great interest. Your word, especially here in the book of Daniel, is so interesting to so many people all throughout time and all throughout the ages, Lord. Ever since you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired Daniel to to write these things. And so, Lord, we thank you that we continue to be able to read and be able to access your wisdom and your truth here together as a church body. But may it penetrate each of us individually in our hearts once again as you bring strength and conviction, as you bring assurance of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, let it be known in our hearts first so that we can tell others of your great love and kindness. Go before us now as we study your word. We pray this now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, first of all, as we read, we see that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Nothing unusual there. We all have dreams. And Daniel talks about the time or the year. Uh, He sets us the setting we have. We kind of backed up after the summary of chapter 1 of of Daniel, uh, his long reign, or excuse me, his long life under the king's uh, rule. So we've backed up now to see this this certain situation, this very unique situation of King Nebuchadnezzar having had a dream. Now Daniel and his friends were by now either just finishing or still completing their training, their three-year training, and they may well have already been assigned as the king's advisors. We'll talk about where they are as as we move forward. But notice Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And it wasn't just a single dream, if you will. It was a recurring dream. God was giving him this dream over and over again, and it kept happening. It's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, sort of like Groundhog Day, right? Every single day. And, and, and the king was getting this dream, and he could not shake it. You know, oftentimes we have dreams, and we barely remember them. But he would remember this one. But he needed some help. And for those that think just because you're the king of the world, and you're the greatest, most powerful man, um, you know, early in, in the history of, uh, of the world, uh, don't be fooled by the fact that no matter who you are, things keep us up at night. Things keep us up at night, especially world leaders. Uh, Shakespeare was right when he said, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Now the chapter before us deals with the nature of dreams and how God can use them for his purposes. 
We all know what dreams are, but what does the Bible have to say? We're going to do a quick little study of what the Bible has to say about dreams. First of all, if you're taking notes, you have three kind of categories of dreams found in the Bible. You have ordinary dreams of sleep. We all have those. You have dreams with prophetic meaning, like such as Daniel's going to interpret for Nebuchadnezzar. And then you, of course, have dreams of false prophets. So ordinary dreams of sleep, Psalm 73:20, it says, you know, as though it was natural, as a dream when one awakes, so the Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. We're not going to talk about the second part of that verse, but the dream is a common occurrence. Everybody has dreams. So ordinary dreams of sleep. Then, of course, the Bible has a lot of dreams with prophetic meaning. And they're mainly found in the early books of the Old Testament. Jacob, uh, you know, his dream in Genesis 28. Of course, Joseph's famous dream in Genesis 37.5. It said, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. You know, Joseph was getting ready. He was prophesying about what was going to happen to them and to himself in the future. Pharaoh and his servants had dreams. Uh, Genesis 40, Genesis 41, and so on. Midianites, here we have the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And then Joel and Joel 3.1, you had, you know, in the latter days that men will dream dreams. So a lot of dreams have prophetic meaning, especially in the Old Testament. Also, of course, we have dreams of the false prophets. And a classic dream of false prophets is Jeremiah 23.32. He says, Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord. And I tell them and cause my people to err by the lies and by their recklessness. So here we see Jeremiah saying, you know what? Not all dreams come from God. In fact, when you study the scriptures, you find out, especially in the nation Israel, that among the Jews, uh, one writer put it this way, if any person dreamed a dream which was particularly striking and significant, like the one we're going to talk about today, that person was permitted to go to the high priest in a very peculiar way and see if it had any special meaning. But the observance of ordinary dreams and the consulting of those who pretend to have skill in their interpretation is repeatedly forbidden. So we we need to be careful with dreams. In the New Testament, you had the wise men from the East in Matthew 2.12. You had Mary's husband Joseph in Matthew Uh, 1.20. Paul had many, many dreams and visions. So we have a lot of dreams in the Bible. But you and I know that because dreams are often incomplete and very mysterious, and you know, you can all tell your story of the weird dream you had, uh, if you remember it, tends like you have these weird dreams and then you forget them, even if you retold the story. Uh, but in any event, uh, you and I have a natural curiosity about dreams because of the lack of this sort of scientific understanding and rational explanation. And I know that science has done a great a great amount of research and dream studies. But really the bottom line is dreams can become a source of superstition and fear. Dreams can, And so you see what Nebuchadnezzar was going through. You see why he was all freaked out. Now you might want to say, um, does God still use dreams to communicate his will? Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, certainly he, God, can do so if he pleases. But this isn't his usual approach. God guides his children today by his Holy Spirit as they pray, seek his face, 
meditate on his word, and consult their spiritual leader. The danger is that our dreams may not come from the Lord. The human subconscious is capable of producing dreams, and as we read in Jeremiah 32, indicates that demonic forces can cause dreams that are in fact Satan's lies and not God's truth. So it's dangerous to just carte blanche, accept dreams as messengers from the Lord. Now having said all that, we do know what's going on in our world today. In the Muslim world, there are many chronicled articles about what's going on over there. In places where you're not allowed to preach the word of God, where the word of God is, is a, you know, for especially for a Muslim, to convert to Christianity is a death sentence, if nothing, and the least is an isolation from your family and loss of your job. But we read it over and over again, and you hear stories over and over again. Uh, an article published in May of 2018 by the Gospel Coalition, a writer by the name of Darren Carlson, he wrote a piece called When, when Muslims Dream of Jesus. And he cited multiple reports of Muslim converts to Christianity. And, and through his articles, he understood, through his interviews, he, he said, you know, he re, the result of these people having experienced, at least in part, dreams of Jesus that led to their salvation in uh, the refugee center in Athens, Greece. You remember when a couple years ago when all the, there was a great migration of Muslims leaving the Middle East and you know, kind of jump all over Europe's borders and a lot of them were held up in Turkey and Greece and eventually some, several made their way into Europe. And these people would come and you'd see where Jesus is speaking scripture. One, one instance says, during the night he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, well, who are you? And the man in white replied, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the way to heaven and no one can go to the Father except through me. That was a dream that he recounted. Another dream after a woman talked about a man in white. After she prayed, she did not know whether she was awake or asleep, but a man in white walked into the room and her, her reaction was blurred out, don't come close to me, you are holy and I am a sinner. Do not get close to me, the man replied. And the name of the person withheld, she says, I told you and I tell you again, I am the way and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that day she believed in the gospel and was saved. So we, we have it, Jesus is the door, Jesus giving instruction. So we do have, in our modern day, we are seeing a rise, and this may be an indication of the end times, we are seeing a rise of people who are living in nations and countries who would not normally have access to the gospel, as we do, actually having dreams of Jesus himself and speaking to them. Okay, all of that. Back to our, 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 uh, our scripture in verse 2. Notice that in verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had this crazy dream, which we'll unpack through the next couple weeks in this chapter. And notice his first reaction. He says, I'm going to call the experts. And so what does he do? For him, the experts were the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the, and the Chaldeans. And he says, I'm calling them in because they're going to tell me what these dreams mean. This dream was not ordinary. He couldn't shake it. So he used his authority to summon the dream specialists. The dream specialists. These were the prognosticators who could foretell future events. And they had various titles. We see them here. Magicians. Magicians. Not what you normally would think of as a magician. 
Uh, the, one of the root meanings of that word is stylus or pen. These magicians were the ones who would record the Babylonian chronicles. Uh, they were sometimes engravers, they were writers, and they had kept the political and the religious records, of which there are literally thousands from the Middle East. Uh, this would have been done by the magicians. But then, of course, you had the astrologers. And, and these names, they come up with names like necromancer, with conjurer, enchanter, or exodus. Excuse me, exorcists. Um, and they profess to have divine knowledge of future events by the appearance of the stars. This science flourished among the Chaldeans and among the people of the Middle East and around the world, actually, but it was positively forbidden by the Jews. In fact, God said in Deuteronomy 18.10, he said, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. That is forbidden. God's people was forbidden. So we had the magicians, he's consulted, he brought in the astrologers, he brought in the sorcerers. Those who would practice witchcraft or sorcery, they would whisper a spell, they would give incantations, or they would practice magic. They, were, they would be known as mutterers. <laughs> Men who professed to have power over the evil spirits. The practice of sorcery exposed the serious punishment. When you read in Revelation 21.8, the final great white throne judgment, it says, but the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So you had those three groups, especially God had, had quite a bit to say about the astrologers and the sorcerers in his word. And then you have this group of people called the Chaldeans. These were people from the lower Euphrates region. They were tribes of the Babylonian community. And they were skilled. They were supposedly skilled at interpretations. And so they had this sort of notoriety of practicing occult arts, secret sciences. And it was even known and written about in the, both the Greek and the Roman times. So this stuff goes way deep in the, in the history of man, if you will, uh, the history of secular man, it's still practiced to this day. And so what does he do? He says, so he came and he stay, he, they, they came, all these people that he called before them, and they stood before the king. In other words, all hands on deck, front and center, if you will. This king could gather experts from all around his land, and he had a vast kingdom. And so he says in verse 3, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now, my, most dreams, like most dreams that you and I have, they're almost impossible to recall in their entirety. I mean, unless you have a dream and you get up and you write down every bit of that dream, chances are you won't remember it by the time you've brushed your teeth. That's just how it is. So, you, you know, right away, here he is. He's brought, brought all his experts in. You ask yourself the question, where are Daniel and his friends? I mean, you would think the king would have called them first or at least to join in the consultation. Because you remember from last week in verse 20, when the king himself interviewed these guys, Daniel and his friends, and he asked them in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king uh, examined them, and he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. So you would think that the king would have gone straight 
for them. But it's been noted that Nebuchadnezzar was a very young ruler at this time. And he's, he's surrounded. Imagine this young king has come into power. Lots of things. We said that one year he, had, he became king. He defeated the Egyptians. And he brought into exile 10,000 Jews. And he had all this stuff going on. So here's this young king in his early 20s. And he's surrounded by a large group of old uh, smart people, old you know, government types and all these advisors who have been advising kings of the past for a very, very long time. And this young man... Uh, lives in a pagan culture that's steeped with the occult. And we, we saw the list of his advisors. So there's nothing new really in pagan culture though. And it's interesting we find ourselves examining an ancient culture and all of this supernatural that's driven from the devil on a day we call Halloween. Interesting that we're looking at all this. I didn't plan it this way. But today is Halloween, and we know that there are people who will be active. Not your average person, not your average Christian, but there will be people, occult people, active in practicing occult arts this very day. This is one of the days they may have looked forward to all year long. And we know that there's terrible things associated with that. In some cases, animal and child sacrifice. We know that. Now here we are, in, uh, in this dream has come to them, you know, you see the background, hopefully you got a, a thorough understanding of the background, and now we look in verses 4 through 9. Their answer, first thing they say, you know, long live the king. You know, it's almost, it's almost like, uh, you know, they, they have, uh, see this guy, he's a young king, and first thing they want to do is they want to say, O king, live forever. Long live the king. Now, if you look at verse 4, it's, it says the Chaldeans or Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Make a note because from here until the middle of chapter 7, the original writing was in Aramaic and not Hebrew. And the reason for that is because this section deals with the history and the destiny of all the Gentile nations in the world. Past, present, and future. And so they, the original writings actually used Aramaic, which was more of the the language of the day throughout the Middle East instead of Hebrew. And so they say, O king, live forever. Long live the king. Viva la emperor, whatever you want to say. The best way to express goodwill to someone, anyone, is to wish them a long life. And so they do. They make sure to get that out right away. O king, live forever. And then they're like, tell your servants the dream. And of course, we'll give you the interpretation. Now, why would they say that? I mean, these were the occult practices, okay? They, they had all the powers, you know. This was, these were the, you know, the most powerful nation, the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. Why would they say, well, tell us the dream first, and then we'll give you the interpretation? Well, mainly because in their defense, if you will, their job was to explain things that people saw. They'd point to dreams. They would point to the flight of birds. They would look at the aspect of entrails of animals slain for sacrifice. They would look at the positions of the stars, the meteors, uncommon appearances in the heavens, and then they would give an interpretation to something that everybody could see. But they were powerless to recall what was forgotten, what was, never, what was in the mind of this king. And then the king said, he answered, he said, my decision is firm. 
In other words, when the king has spoken, he cannot take the word back. Even though he was young, he most likely had grown up and he'd seen this pattern before. He'd observed, you know, the obvious. It's like, I see you guys doing this all the time. You see something that everybody else can see and then you make it up. You make up an answer. <laughs> he's sort of, it's like he's onto them. The king either forgot the finer details of the dream or he was testing them. And it's probably a combination of both. You know how we can't, as we said, it's often hard to remember our dreams, but also he was certainly testing them. Now, either way, the dream, what, what he was asking them to do was impossible. And then he says to, to throw uh, fuel on the fire, he says, if you don't make it known, the dream to me and its interpretation, you should be cut into pieces. Now, in ancient times, and maybe in some places even today, this was a mode of punishment. This, it was a mode of punishment to dismember a person. Uh, even in our Constitution, the Eighth Amendment had to abolish cruel and unusual punishment because of the practice of the English, of the crown. Uh, one of the most severe punishments they would do would draw and quarter someone. They'd hang it from a tree while they were still alive. They would slit their belly open and cut off all their arms and legs, and then they would cut their head off, all, you know, all while they could feel it and while they could see what was going on right to the end. A disgusting cruel and unusual punishment. So the king, they knew, okay, when he says, I'm going to cut you in pieces, that doesn't mean I'm just going to give you a tongue lashing. Uh, no. And then it says, your houses will be made into an ash heap, like a public outhouse. Uh, uh, King James Version says, your house will be made to, into a dunghill, a pile of rubble, a pile of... So here he's, he's telling them, look, you don't give me the answer. Not only am I going to inflict this cruel and unusual punishment on you, I'm going to destroy your family and everybody that lives in it and the house that you live in. Now you can almost see the smiles being removed from their faces, right? Then he says in verse 6, he says, Look, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. In other words, he's appealing to their highest hopes. Therefore, he stands his ground, he stands firm. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, they weren't ready to give up quite yet. They're trying to buy some time. Verse 8 or 7, he says, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give its interpretation. So again, maybe they thought they could wear him out. Maybe they, could, they thought that they could, you know, weather the storm that this young king is in having an extremely bad mood and maybe we can just kind of wait him out. And they were frustrated. He says, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give its interpretation. See, this was their method of telling, you know, if I see something in the stars and I make something up and I've given this title, then you're going you're gonna to believe me. And in verse 8, he calls him out again. He says, I know for certain you would gain time, but my decision is firm. They were trying to use a delay tactic. And so he says again in verse 9, if you do not make known the dream to me, there was but one decree. In other words, the king was not going to be in the habit of repeating every word that he had just spoken. He already said what the decree was. And if they didn't catch that, some scribe was writing it down. But obviously he means business. So he was putting them through the litmus test, wasn't he? 
Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. He had the power to do this. It wasn't like he had to run it by his advisors and you know, his second-in-command or run it through the Congress or you know, submit it to a judge. He had the power, absolute monarch had the power to do this. Uh, Jeremiah 52.8, we know he was not only was he an absolute monarch, but he was a very cruel character. It says, but the army, and in the, in the, you see, you remember the story from Jeremiah 52, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and pronounced judgment upon him. Right then and there. And then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah right before his eyes. Killed his children right before his eyes. He killed all the princes of Judah. And they also put the eyes out of Zedekiah and brought him back. So the last thing that Zedekiah, this, this king, saw was his family being killed. The last thing that he saw before his eyes were taken away from him. And that would stay in his mind for the rest of his life. And he was put in prison until the day of his death. So you have an absolute monarch who is a very mean person. But notice as we finish the message today, as we get to the last part, how God is proving, God is proving to these men just how powerless their occult practices are. How worthless they are. How weak they are. In verse 10, they admit that it's beyond human power. They said there's not a man on earth, there's not a man on God's green earth that can do what you're asking us to do, king. And therefore, because of that, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of anybody, any magician, any astrologer or Chaldean, because it's beyond our ability. Nobody's even asked to have it done before. Further on, it's a difficult thing that the king requests. Not only has it never been asked, but it's rare even to consider what he's asking. And then they start to show their hand. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods. Small g, the gods. You see, this was the heathen culture. This was the secular culture. And they had false gods. And they had heathen deities. Some of them were named like Bel and, and Nebo. Uh, and a number of other. Often the gods of the Babylonians were named by precious metals. The god of gold, the god of silver, the god of brass. They had gods of iron, they had gods of wood and stone. This is what we call polytheism. Many gods. And they had all these things, but they really are, are worthless to do the type of supernatural things that only God can do. And they say... No other God except the gods whose dwelling is not in the flesh, who doesn't habitate. Now, did you hear that? These so-called men of wisdom and all of their occult knowledge are admitting that their practices are too weak to give real answers. Their art, their art has failed them. Paul talks about idol, idols and idol worship in 1 Corinthians Chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. And even if there are so-called gods, 
whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through him are all things, and through him we live. So, there, you know, even if you call it a God, it's really a demonic practice, whether you, whether you believe it or not, because anything that's not with God that you idolize is with the devil. And you can dress it up however you want. Now, throughout Bible history, writes one writer, you find occasions when God exposed the foolishness of the world and the deceptiveness of Satan. Moses and Aaron defeated the magicians of Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Elijah on Mount Carmel exposed the deception of Baal worship in 1 Kings 18. Jeremiah confronted the false prophet Hananiah and revealed his wickedness. And Paul exposed the teaching of Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer. But it was Jesus who by his life, his teaching, and sacrificial death that declared the wisdom of this world was foolishness to God. And that includes all the myths and the false religions. The statement of the advisors in Daniel 2.10 wipes out astrology and other forms of strictly human prophecy. And out of their own mouths, they condemned their own practices. Well, the king wasn't too happy with that, you see in verse 12. And it says, for this reason, for the fact that they revealed that all of their so-called wisdom was worthless, as an angry young king and a cruel young man, gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. He realized that basically they were worthless to deliver what he presumed they should at least try to do, even though they knew their limits. He was angry, he was very furious, and he gave the command to destroy all the wise men. And so in verse 13, the decree went out. They began to kill the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. In other words, the decree went out. It had been recorded what exactly to do. The king has spoken, and now the word has gone out. And they sought to kill Daniel and his companions. And if you want to know, continue uh, on what happens to Daniel, you have to stay tuned for next week. Now, final thoughts. For you and I, this is a very good reminder that even the devil doesn't believe his own lies. Even the devil doesn't believe his own lies. The devil is powerless to read your mind. He's powerless to create anything. His greatest weapon is to get you to believe his flimsy lies. His occult practices are limited even though they are very evil. An example. Um, Margaret and I were visiting a church down in Hatteras, uh, Hatteras Island Christian Fellowship recently, and they had a, a couple from Haiti. Haiti. They had a couple of Haitian missionaries. <laughs> oh, my goodness. His name was Malcolm and Joy. Malcolm and Joy. Malcolm is a medical doctor who was trained. He's from America. Him and his wife are from Chicago. Uh, he went to med school. He became a, a, a board-certified trauma surgeon. And he had a $400,000 a year uh, contract. You know, this man was set for life to practice medicine and make a lot of money at it. Uh, 
but he's a believer and he felt that the Lord had called him to go to Haiti and to use his skills there in Haiti. So they have a, a, a ministry there uh, called Charis, um, which I'm praying about uh, possibly supporting them and, and you know, when he comes, having come speak to us. Because he's got some amazing stories about the country of Haiti. It's a, it's a country that has literally sold its soul to the devil back in the 1600s, 1700s, in the revolt against the French. Uh, voodoo was listed, was recently, not so recently, but in modern times, was listed as the state religion. Voodoo and witchcraft, ritual sacrifice, recent assassinations, natural disasters, and hostages taken. This place is being, uh, I would say, probably judged by God, by what's happening there. We know that there were... Uh, um, these recent hostages we've been praying for, some of them have been released. I think one has been released. But Malcolm would tell you, uh, in that country, what we would say, oh, that's just a joke. That stuff doesn't really, it's not even real, okay? This witchcraft, that stuff you read about, it's just, you know, you go to New Orleans, you walk down uh, Bourbon Street, and you see the places where they have all the trinkets and stuff like that. Now, it, it's very real. Um, he, I don't believe he's lying about it. Uh, he had lots of information about ritual sacrifice. He had pictures, which I didn't see, that he had shown of people being cut in pieces. Okay, remember what Nebuchadnezzar said he would do, the cruel thing he would do? Well, this happens on a regular basis where people are dismembered in a ritual fashion, you know, and they're, and they're, they're being offered to, in their voodoo practice, their witchcraft. In fact, there are people who will spend thousands of dollars to go down to Haiti to consult with witch doctors for cures, for cures for cancer. And Malcolm, being a doctor, he goes, sometimes it appears that what they've done actually works. But he goes, I don't believe it works for the long term. They get the money and they go down there. So this is a very real thing in our modern world. And we need to be reminded, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Notice that the king was so furious and so angry that the only thing he could do was start destroying people, just like the devil. And Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You and I have Christ's power within us to resist him. James 4, 7 says to all of us, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When Malcolm and his wife speak to churches around the country, he will tell everybody, you hear, you go, I'm not going to Haiti. I'm not going on a short-term mission trip down there. I could get captured by witch doctors. And he said, what's amazing to what happens when they receive Christ, when, when people in that, that country, they're so battered and they're so beat up and they're so laden with guilt for the things that they know they've done wrong, but they're so gratified and they're so happy to receive Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, he said, just like James said here, you and I have the power to resist the devil. You don't have to have special credentials or anything else. The fact that you know Jesus Christ, you have the power to resist the devil. So to those of us who are attending our outreach this afternoon, we're not 
selling and we're not celebrating darkness. We are providing an alternative to our kids and a witness to our neighbors. We'll have a prayer tent. We'll be giving out Bibles and gospel tracts to share. So let's pray to the Lord that he would send those who are in need of the good news. Those who have been lied to by Satan. Those who thought they had the answers, but when they really studied and they really looked at things and they looked at what they were doing in life, they realized they don't have the answer. Only God has the answer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in your word today, Lord. Put it upon our hearts once again to realize that the enemy and his lies and his tricks are worthless and they are no good. And they won't stand up before you and your truth. They cannot stand the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, let your light shine upon us. Let your light shine from within us out to others. Work in our hearts, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence to know not only that we're saved, but for the confidence to know that we serve a mighty God and a mighty King who can overcome all things. And yes, life is difficult, Lord, but you walk with, it, with us through the entire time. So, Father, we just pray that you would go before us. Lord, I do pray for people and what they're doing today in this, this so-called Halloween holiday, this so-called celebration. And I pray for those that are purposefully going to do what goes against you and your word. I pray for the, against the harm that they will do, not only to themselves, but to others, Lord God. But Lord, I pray also for those who just are unaware of the truth. They just don't know. They don't understand. Go before us. If you can use us in a very small way to impact our community today, I pray that you would have a powerful effect in the lives of the people you send us. So go before us today. Go before this fellowship. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things now in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, let's stand with our closing prayer, and then we'll close with a song. Numbers 624, verses 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We're the Lord. Not count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me. In the way he named The same God who's never late Is working all things out Working all things out Yes, I will lift you high In the lowest valley Yes, I will bless your name Yes, I will Sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I will.
same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the way He made. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your day. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I will for all my days. Yes, I will not choose to praise, to glorify. The name of all names That nothing can stand against And I choose to praise To glorify, glorify The name of all names That nothing can stand against And I choose to praise To glorify, glorify The name of all names That nothing can stand Again, and not choose to praise, to glorify, glorify the name of all things. That nothing can stand against. Oh yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. When my heart is heavy all my days Yes, I will for all my days Yes, I will for all my days Yes, I will God bless you and have a great week. Joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.